Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're going to consider again the second command, the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. And I just want to review um, what we believe about that and kind of a summary of our exposition of that in uh, our catechism question. Would you uh, follow along as I read on the bottom of the front page of the bulletin, question 102 of our Westminster Shorter Catechism. What do we pray for in the second, com- second petition? In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come. We pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. This evening we're going to consider the subject of thy kingdom come and imprecatory psalms. And so I'd like to read Matthew 6, verse 10, 1 Corinthians 16, 12, and then um, Psalm 83. So you might turn to Psalm 83 and also listen as I read these other short verses. Uh, Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10 say, Pray then this like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. It's a kind of startling end to the epistle. In verse 22 of chapter 16, Paul said, wrote, If anyone has no love for the Lord... Let him be accursed, O Lord, come. And then turn with me for a longer reading in Psalm 83. Psalm 83, a song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silent. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Ashur also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. 
make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would sanctify us in truth, and we confess that your word is truth, so we pray that your spirit might indeed work faith in us, write your word upon our hearts, and transform us to have every thought held captive to your word. May we love what you love and hate what you hate. Defeat and put to death the sin in our hearts. That we might learn to know you and trust you and anticipate what you have promised to us in the covenant of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's an outline on the back of the bulletin. As we sing in Psalm 109, I hope you picked up that the Lord has given us in the Psalms, uh, as Calvin says, an anatomy of every part of the soul, or maybe as someone today might say, in the Psalms, the Lord has, has given us uh, material, uh, righteous material with which we can appeal to the Lord and, and address the Lord for every cir- in every circumstance that we face in our life. The Psalms indeed express our hearts better than we could if we were just to sit down and write a poem or write out our prayer. They help us praise God's glory better than we could ever praise and express ourselves. And then we come to sections of the Psalms like this. Oh, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. There are sections of the Psalter like this that we can never sing with a light-hearted heart or tune. So have you ever wondered... What place do these curses that we find in the Psalms play in the Christian life? What place do these imprecations or curses play in the Christian life? Well, a quick answer is that we don't have a license just to curse freely anyone we want. But Christ has given us the warrant to curse our enemies in the Lord's Prayer. 
Praying thy kingdom come, generally when we pray that, we think of all the great things, the return of Christ. Uh, But praying thy kingdom come also requires a holy zeal for the Lord's victory over his enemies in the kingdom of Satan. And so if we love Christ's kingdom, we must hate every enemy of Christ. Just as an example, we had our visitor from Brazil over, and uh, he has a picture of a guy named Pele, the great Brazilian soccer player. And, and we said, hey, do you know who Beckham is? And he said, huh. He wouldn't like Beckham because Beckham is always the opponent. In the same way, if we love Christ's kingdom, we must hate every enemy of Christ. We sing the Psalms as part of worship because we believe that Christ commands us to sing the Psalms. And so we cannot escape dealing with these psalms. We cannot escape using the imprecatory psalms in our public, in our private worship. Several psalms, like Psalm 83, they contain these imprecations, that's the big word, or curses upon our enemies. And we must believe that Christ gave these psalms to us in the word. His spirit inspired them and delivered them to us and preserved them for us. And so as we desire to pray, thy kingdom come, as Christ commanded, we're going to take some time to consider the subject of Christian curses and consider that subject carefully. And I want to consider with our first, our first point, Christian cursing or imprecation is rooted in the gospel promises. Now I don't know if that throws you off when I say that Christian curses, curses are rooted in the gospel promises. But let me ask a question. Do you remember how we received the first gospel promise in the Bible? It's in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. It was given to us in the form of a curse. That's how the gospel was first delivered to us. God cursed the serpent, saying this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And as you read the rest of the Bible, we discover that Christ is that offspring of the woman. And Christ crushed the serpent Satan on the cross in order to save sinners. And then, when the gospel promise was given to Abraham in the form of the covenant of grace, the Lord, Testament, the Lord said this in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3. In the very first communication of God's covenant with us to Abraham, he says, I will bless those who bless you. But did you pick up on what else he said? And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, the gospel has always been given along with a curse. The Lord was jealous of Abraham because he had made a covenant with Abraham And so anyone who threatened Abraham actually threatened God and received curses from God. And so when we put these two passages together, Genesis 3 and Genesis 12, we find a helpful rule for who can receive curses. 
And I think the rule, I sum, I'll summarize the rule this way. Curses are appropriate for God's enemies and the enemies of God's people. You see, God's people have always prayed for the curse upon enemies of God and upon the church. In Psalm 83, 2, we read about this. There in, in verse 2 of Psalm 83, David prayed, For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. He's praying to God against those who hate God. Then in verse 4, those same enemies of God wanted to destroy Israel. And so when God asked, when David asked God to consume them as fire consumes the forest, he prays a proper curse upon the enemies of God in the church. He's just remembering what God said about the serpent and all in his kingdom in Genesis 3.14. And he's remembering what God said about Israel, the people of God, and, and that all who curse Israel will be cursed. And, and David is just simply praying a prayer that is informed by the word of God and the promises of God and his covenant with us. In Matthew chapter 23 Christ warned his enemies, and do you remember how he warned them there? With the woes, with seven curses. In verse 13, this is what he said, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The scribes and Pharisees who Christ is warning with this curse that they will bear if they do not turn in repentance, they, they are the enemies of the elect who long to come into the church and actually, they're the enemies of God themselves. They don't even want to come under the reign of the Messiah. And then Paul himself practiced Christian cursing. This is what he said in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And it's not any more white collar than David's curses. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, he ends the gospel. In the last three statements, one of them is this. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Paul cursed those who led the church away from the true gospel. And so we need to, when we think about these things, we need to understand that we don't have the right to just go around cursing anyone we want. Rather, true proper righteous imprecation or christian cursing is limited we are limited to the enemies of christ and his kingdom and if you're trying to fill in blanks i just gave you the answer curses are right for the enemies of christ and his kingdom well that takes us to our second point christian cursing aims at god's glory justice and salvation Christian cursing aims at God's glory, justice, and salvation. You know, we have to submit to the biblical purpose of cursing. Just like we're not to just cut off our, our hand if it causes us to sin, like Jesus says. We're supposed to realize that's a metaphor. It's teaching us a principle. We need to not just take the curses and say we have a free-for-all to curse anyone we want. But rather... Our cursing, our, our zeal for the destructions of, destru destruction of Christ's enemy and the kingdom of Satan, it must be informed and motivated and, and restrained by the word of God. 
David's, I want you to look at verse 18 of Psalm 83. See, David's purpose in these imprecations or these curses was that they may know you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. He calls the, he calls the Lord to curse all of these enemies of God, these enemies that deny God, that hate his people that are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, he calls them, God to, he prays that God would curse them so that they would come to know that God alone is the most high over all the earth. He's cursing them and desiring their curse at the hand of God so that God would be glorified. You see, we have no right to curse a soul on our own behalf just because something, someone does something bad hits our car, takes something from us. The only proper cursing that we can take upon our lips must be cursing done with a desire for God's glory and not our own glory. And that means we must not be moved by sinful offense, sinful desire in our heart. Rather, everything we do must be driven by the glory of Christ. And only, the only curse that can come upon our lip is a, lips is a curse that seeks the glory of Christ. And second, proper cursing aims at God's judgment and justice. All the imprecations in the Psalms, they flow from that theme of the Psalm in Psalm 1. And this is the theme as related to the wicked in verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. We need to understand that each of these imprecatory psalms and each of the curses in the Bible pray for the curse that God promised to pay for sin. It's back there in Genesis chapter 2. It's repeated in Romans 6.23. It's repeated in Psalm 1. In other words, these hard sayings in the psalms, they're they're not just spiteful um, men praying to God. Rather, these sayings in the Psalms are all seeking God's justice, his holy justice. Paul did the same thing in 2 Timothy 2.14. There, there he said, Alexander the con- coppersmith did me, much great, or did me great harm. And then he went on to say, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The Lord will, will repay him with his justice. And don't forget that the imprecatory prayers go on in heaven also. Not just in the Old Testament church, not in the New Testament church, but also in heaven. In Revelation chapter 16, verses 5 and 6, we read of the prayer for God's justice. And this is how it goes. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. That's a harsh saying. But don't forget that these people are the enemies of God. They sinned against God with open sin and rebellion. And these prayers are only the prayers for justice, the justice of our holy God toward those people who who hate them. Maybe to say it another way, these prayers are the prayers that, that God would 
would glorify himself according to the covenant he made with us in the covenant of works with Adam, where he, wherein he promised eternal life for perfect obedience and the curse of death for sin. In precatory prayers, Christian curses must seek the glory of God and they must be motivated and aimed at God's justice and God glorifying himself through his justice. And third, Christian cursing also aims at salvation, at salvation. I want you to listen to David's desire in Psalm 83, verse 16. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. That they may seek your name, O Lord. You see, David wanted his enemies to be won. That's true. And defeated. But he wanted them to be defeated and won to repentance and faith. He wanted them to be saved before they were destroyed. And this should be our desire for our enemies and the enemies of Christ and the church, whether it be Islam or the Roman church or Hinduism or atheist or, or whatever enemy of Christ and his, and his church that is under the, the oversight of the kingdom of Satan. We must desire first that they be saved rather than or before we pray that they perish under the covenant in Adam. In Acts chapter 13, verse 12, we find salvation. We see a conversion in response to a curse. In Acts 13, 12, the governor of Cyprus was converted when Paul cursed this magician to Elemas, when he cursed him to hell. And Paul's words were strong, cursing this man that he is going to hell in his sin. And when the governor of Cyprus heard that imprecation, He believed in the Lord and was converted and became a disciple of Christ. So when we pray for the destruction of the enemies of God and the church, our first desire for them, it should be their salvation. We should pray earnestly with with all of our emotion and desire and will that, that they be defeated, that they be conquered. And that they be conquered by the sword of the word of God, the gospel, and be one as Christ's disciples. And we should pray for a hard part of sanctification, and that is that we praise God for his glory when he keeps to his covenant. When he pours out what he promised to men in Adam in the covenant of works, and what he pours out when he, what he promised to the elect in the covenant of grace. Christian cursing has to be motivated with righteous motives. It needs to be aimed at God's glory. It needs to be it needs to seek God's justice. And it needs to seek and pray first as the first desire for the salvation of the enemies of God. That takes us to our third point. Christian cursing requires the right balance between love and hate. It requires the right balance between love and hate. Listen, we read a, a psalm of Asaph, but it, Psalm 35 is an imprecatory psalm, a psalm of David. Psalm 110, did you not hear the curses in that? Well, we, we need to recognize that David authored the psalms. 
And therefore, we need to understand his context and understand all of, like, David's heart. And we need to remember that his character, that he was actually a king who, after God's heart, who was quick to love and quick to lament, but often very slow to execute justice. David had a forgiving heart, not a vengeful heart. Do you remember his response when he heard the news that Saul, King Saul, had been cut down and killed by the Philistines? Saul, the one who chased him for 20 years, and if Saul could have got hold of David, he would have cut him down on the spot. But David lamented and sang a psalm of praise, lamenting the death of the Lord's anointing. Do you remember how David responded to Absalom's death? Absalom was David's son who usurped the throne and wanted and chased his dad down to kill him. When he heard of Absalom's death, he wept and mourned. David, the same, the same author of these psalms that proclaim those curses that are, so, that are so difficult for us to read and sing. He was a man filled with love and forgiveness and slow to execute justice. So we need to see these curses in that context. David, he showed both love and hate for his enemies. Let me give you some more examples. In Psalm 35, verse 13, this is a notorious imprecatory psalm. David confessed praying for his enemies. He confessed mourning for them before he asked for God's curse upon them. In Psalm 109 that we just sang, David wrote about his love for those he prayed God would curse. He said in verse 4 and 5, So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. In other words, David was showing his enemies goodness and caring for them. He was showing them love. And then in Psalm 139, verse 21, David wrote, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Those are strong words. David had a balance between love and hate for his enemies. And this balance between loving our enemies and hating them, it exists in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 6, Verse 43, Christ responds to the people's desire to just hate their enemies. And he says, no. Don't hate. He says, no, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Basically calling Israel to do what David had done. Paul picked up on this theme in Romans chapter 12. He forbid us from seeking revenge. Because vengeance is from the Lord, but he told us to wait for God's wrath. The implication is that we can pray to God for vengeance and justice. If vengeance toward our enemies is for the Lord, then all we can do is pray. Pray that God would cause justice to be done. And then Paul goes on to teach us to feed our enemies and to give them drink when they're thirsty. And he gives us this principle, overcome evil with good. So on one hand, we're to hope and wait for God's vengeance. On the other hand, we're supposed to show love for our enemies, overcoming evil with good and heaping coals upon them. Well, David Murray, 
uh, in an article he wrote, or a chapter he wrote, he summarized this, uh, the, this struggle and this balance between love and hate. He wrote, Prayers of imprecation should not be our first reaction to evil, but our last. However, it is possible, it is possible to both love and hate the same person at the same time. We may hate what someone stands for and is doing against God and his people while at the same time desiring his salvation. We may love his soul while at the same time praying that God would defeat him in his persecution of God's people. And that is a very difficult balance to strike. After David cursed God's enemies in Psalm 139, this is what he prayed. After he says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? He goes on to say, search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We need to guard our hearts and seek that difficult balance between love and hate for our enemies. And we can guard our hearts from sinful motives and cursing in a very practical way. We can do it by letting the Holy Spirit guide us and guide us by singing the psalms to deal with our enemies. Singing the psalms, letting the psalms, the words of the righteous man, teach us how to respond to every experience and emotion in life. And so if you struggle with the imprecatory psalms, know that if we were to do it ourselves, we would fall into sin and would would not have this balance between love and hate for our enemies that Christ instructs us to have. But instead, we should embrace the Psalter, the psalms, even those psalms with curses, knowing that in them the Lord teaches us the proper balance between loving our enemies and cursing our enemies and the enemies of our God. And I'd like to conclude with our first point. Christian cursing looks to Christ. Christian cursing looks to Christ. Just go home tonight and read Psalm 35 and 69 and 109. You'll find they are profound, imprecatory psalms. They are the kind of psalms that, in general, you get nervous when I put them in the liturgy. It's like, oh, we're going to sing those? But you know what? The New Testament reveals that they are psalms about Christ. And I just admit, over the past couple weeks, as we think about thy kingdom come, as, we're, as we work through each psalm a week, we're in the 50s and 60s, there's a lot of cursing. There's a lot of calling the world stupid people. And, and yet, what we need to understand is the psalms are the songs of Christ. The Spirit of God quotes them in the New Testament, but he never says, oh, I'm just taking these words, but the curses are so Old Testament. Rather, the Spirit of God inspired the apostles to reveal them as psalms of Christ completely, psalms that are the words of Christ, that are prophecies of Christ, that that Christ our King takes upon his lips and we sing with them. Psalm 109 predicts Judas's replacement. In other words, it implies the, the 
the betrayal of Christ by Judas and then how Judas is replaced and, and how he dies with no uh, children. Psalm 109 speaks also about the suffering of Christ. But Psalm 109 and 69 and 35 and others, they record Christ's prayer for vindication and judgment over his enemies. You see, true Christian cursing in the Psalms and our prayers, it doesn't pray for ourselves. Rather, it's a a humble heart. It's a humble motivation and aim. When we sing these psalms, we sing the songs of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our King. And we sing about his triumph. His triumph over the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over the, this present darkness. Even the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We pray for Christ's victory. His coming victory over Satan. And quite frankly, we pray with all of heaven... For Christ's glory in salvation of the elect or judgment of the enemies of God and the reprobate of God. When we sing the imprecatory psalms, we sing the psalms of Christ. We sing these songs as along with Christ our King. So Christian cursing, true Christian cursing, looks to Christ and his glory and the honor of his kingdom and the prosperity of his kingdom and the defeat of his enemies. And what happens generally in history is that these psalms go out of use. And this is a time where they go out of use and have gone out of use. The prosperity that we know and the relative peace we enjoy today makes these prayers very uncomfortable to us. But really, all we need is a world war one. Gerhardus Voss said when people struggle to sing the imprecatory psalms, all they need is a big war. And they all, all, the, all of a sudden, those psalms become relevant. All we need is a fiery persecution All we need is an uprising of powerful heretics to awaken our hearts that we might sing and pray for Christ's kingdom to come with triumph through the gospel or triumph through judgment on our enemies. So praying thy kingdom come, it should encourage us all to sing the entire Psalter. The Holy Spirit will satisfy our hearts under oppression and will teach us a right and holy zeal for Christ and the glory of his kingdom as we seek to thank his thoughts after him, as we seek to take this book of 150 psalms and use them in response and petition to the Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you might give us faith to begin seeing even these hard sayings, these imprecations in your word with joy, with zeal for Christ your Son and our King. Lord, teach us to be able to praise you in every facet of praise and worship that you give to us and reveal to us in in the Psalms and throughout the word of God. And Lord, we pray 
We do pray that you would destroy the enemies of Christ's kingdom, your enemies. Lord, we pray that you would cause the word of God to go out powerfully as your spirit takes it and wields it as a double-edged sword to conquer and defeat the lost and convert your elect and draw them and bring them to Christ in humble faith and repentance that they may be saved. And Lord, as you do that, we pray that you might destroy every false religion and every enemy of your son. And Lord, we long. We long for him to come soon. We long for that day that we sing about in Psalm 2 where every nation will bow the knee to Christ. Bring that day soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And we ask that you would cause your kingdom to be more manifest kingdom to be more manifested in our lives personally as your spirit conforms us to the image of Christ in our families as we seek to obey you out of a a gratitude and thankfulness for your grace in this church as we long to submit to Christ's crown rights over us seeking the purity of your worship and government and seeking you to remove our imperfections and our sin, that we indeed might be light and salt in the earth. And we pray, we pray that you would convert our families and our friends, our leaders and our enemies with the good news of Christ, that we might even sit down next week or stand up as you call us to worship here with a brother or a sister who was today an enemy but was converted by the powerful work of your spirit through your word. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.